WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Currently, we're in a sixth mass extinction, with amphibians being one of the most imperiled groups. The amphibian pet trade industry is at a risk of collapse. To tell us more about this, we're talking to Gia Haddock. Gia, may you please tell us about yourself and your research? Yeah, hi. So my name is Gia Haddock, and I am a senior at Michigan State University studying fisheries and wildlife. So my research focuses on working with amphibian pet trade, different stakeholders. So those are people who have an investment in the amphibian pet trade. And there is currently a sixth mass extinction happening with amphibians very highly at risk of extinction. And this is because of a couple diseases. The one that I'm focusing on is called B. sal, which is a kind of fungus. And it is primarily spread through the pet trade. So with my research, what I'm doing is I'm asking those involved in the amphibian pet trade what their current actions are, what their current opinions are on the current legislation in regards to biosecurity actions, as well as their current knowledge of the disease and of biosecurity to prevent this disease. So I'm doing that through conducting interviews with them and analyzing the data afterwards to provide information for decision makers to hopefully stop people from the disease from spreading further. It's nice to see you again, Gia. When it comes to the amphibians that are found within this pet trade, what are some common ones that people might find at some pet stores, for example? Probably the most common ones you're going to find are frogs in the amphibian world. So this will be like your uh, white tree frogs, a Pac-Man frog, which are pretty cute. They're kind of big and blubbery little guys. Some poison dart frogs, as well as tree frogs. My research targets more of the salamander side of this, and you don't really see salamanders or newts in pet stores, and this is because of the fungus, actually. It's kind of been limited to a little bit more of private distribution and private breeders instead of it being something that's more commercially available. I would imagine that the Pac-Man frog is pretty cute because it's named Pac-Man frog. You had mentioned that you're specifically focused on the B-cell fungus. How does this fungus spread? Does it matter what species it is, or does it just go on any amphibian? So that's a very good question. It's a question that we're kind of asking now. It's been identified that it most likely came from Southeast Asia being carried from wild-caught amphibians there into Europe. And on these amphibians, they were eventually purchased and released into the wild. And so that's how the fungus was spread to the wild in Europe. So it's believed. It can be carried on most salamander or newt species, and some of them have varying degrees of disease that they face from it. Some are completely decimated and some are able to recover from it, though that's pretty rare. It can also be carried by some frogs, but they don't experience any harmful effects from it. Gotcha. So it sounds like this is an invasive fungus that has spread all over the world. When it comes to the fungus's mortality rate, how deadly is the fungus whenever an amphibian is infected with it? And what does the treatment look like for these fungi infections? 
There's a lot of variability with how it affects different species. And truly in the United States, it hasn't been found in the wild yet, very thankfully. It has only been tested in between 7 to 10 of our naturally occurring species. And of those species, I believe four of them experience intense mortality. If we look at where it was established in the populations in Europe, it almost completely wiped out the fire salamanders that were native in the Netherlands and Germany. And most of the species that experience it do experience death within about a week or two. What it does is it kind of eats away at the skin. In contrast to B-cell, there is BD, which is the frog version of it. This is one that has been spread all across the world. It has a lot more research done on it. B-cell was newly identified in 2016. So that's where I'm kind of focusing on that one is because there's a little bit more opportunity for work in that area. Looking at BD with frogs, though, they are related, and that also has very high mortality rates for frogs as well. Well, it's really good that you're focused on B-cell since there's a lot of research already done on BD. Speaking of your research, you had said that you're conducting interviews with these people who are part of the pet trade. How do you go upon this? Do you contact pet store owners, or do you have to find these people in certain areas? And then what are you asking them specifically when you're conducting these interviews? So looking for people to participate was definitely a challenge. I started doing my interviews basically right when the COVID-19 pandemic happened. Mainly who I was targeting were people who fall under five different categories. This would be someone who's been identified as a breeder of amphibians, someone who's identified as just an amphibian pet owner. I own a few different species of frogs or salamanders. Um, Also looking at veterinarians who treat amphibians some rescue organizations who work with amphibians, and the last one is some pet store owners. For finding these people, I ended up using a lot of different online forums, and that's kind of where I was able to tap into the market, I guess, of amphibian pet trade people. And it took a little bit of process of building up this kind of trust. When I interview them, I ask questions about how do they take care of their pets? So how often are they cleaning their enclosures? Where do they source their amphibians from, whether they breed them themselves or if they get them from someone they know? I also ask questions about what their opinions are on possible B-cell management actions. So these would be ones like banning the importation of amphibians or requiring testing for all amphibians that are imported into the U.S. From my academic experience in peace building, I've learned just how important it is to get input from different groups that are involved with a certain situation. In your case, it's regarding the pet trade. Could you talk a little bit about how the answers varied from group to group? Yeah, so there was actually quite a bit of variability within groups as well as there were between them. So looking at amphibian pet owners, this is who I had the most amount from. It was pretty widely varied in their opinions on possible management actions. So some people were for some of the more restrictive ones, like completely banning pet trade, or there's even the possibility of destroying infected environments that could be harboring the fungus because it does survive in water and soil as well. And these people were a little bit more willing to talk about some certain things Uh, in regards to this and their opinions. I did receive some people who didn't really want to talk too much about their opinions on things and were very much against like no banning, no larger actions being taken. But almost everyone I spoke to was for requiring testing for imports, which I thought was a pretty good sign for me at least. 
Across groups, there was a lot of consensus on how to take care of their animals. There were some people who had bioactive setups, which are a little bit more self-sustaining versus cleaning with bleach and keeping their amphibians away from other amphibians. There was a lot of variability in disposal of substrates, and that's kind of something that I wanted to focus on in the research as well, because the way that you dispose of your water or of the soil with your amphibians can introduce invasive species into the environment. So some people were ones who just take their water and their soil and throw it in their backyards. Other ones would bake it for hours before they put it in a plastic bag and took it directly to the trash center. So there was a lot of variability in that. And that was something that I found interesting was that there's not a lot of consensus on what to do with the things that your animal has been using. But there did seem to be a lot of consensus on how to take care of the animal itself. I'm quite surprised that there actually isn't a consensus from the government just how to manage these materials, like how you're saying how to bake the soil and stuff like that, especially because it can cause spread upon other places. In your survey, we were asking people about their opinions of the legislation. Can you give us examples of the laws and the policies that you talked with with these different groups? For sure. So first, the amphibian pet trade is almost entirely unregulated. There really is not a lot of laws or regulations surrounding it. It has been brought up more recently in regards to a amendment to the Lacey Act that went through in 2016 when BSAL was first identified. And this was something, a decision that was made by our official government decision makers, by our legislators, without really any input from stakeholders in the amphibian pet trade themselves. And what this did was it listed over 200 species of salamanders as injurious, which basically means that they're very dangerous to have in the states and that they could no longer be imported or spread across state lines. And so that angered a lot of stakeholders because a large amount of the business in America with the amphibian pet trade is captive bred. So someone will breed, say they breed some newts in Minnesota and they ship them to people out in California or out in South Dakota or North Carolina, but it's widely done across state lines. So this was met with a lot of outrage and it ended up being appealed so that they could still transfer amphibians across state lines. And this also helped with continuing uh, pet trade shows, which are a very lucrative opportunity for people involved in this as well. But now there is a new bill that's being introduced by Marco Rubio, where they're again trying to completely ban trading across state lines, as well as adding more types of exotic animals to the import list that are listed as injurious. So they are not allowed into the U.S. at all, unless you have a very special permit. Almost everyone I spoke to was against this. There really was not a lot of support for continuing a ban on importation because no matter anyone's involvement in the amphibian pet trade, they did have some sort of stake in it, whether it was just their monetary stake or whether it was how much they love and care for their animals, or if it was wanting to share it with their kids. It was quite a overwhelmingly not positive response in regards to having things completely banned from importation. And that's really the only actions that have been taken by legislators lately. So that's, again, part of the reason why I wanted to do my work was to get an idea of what actions are people looking for? Would they be in support of instead of having their hobby and their livelihoods effectively diminished and desecrated? 
what you're saying there, Gia, reminds me a little bit actually of the big cat trade issues that we're seeing here in the US also, like for example, that were amplified by shows like Tiger King. When it comes to the B cell fungus, are there rapid ways to be able to detect whether or not the amphibians that are coming in or the other materials that are associated with amphibian care have signs of this fungus associated with it? Yeah, so there is a way to test for this. It's actually using PCR testing, which is a part of what we're doing for rapid COVID testing. So when you amplify the DNA of this fungus and you're able to recognize it more easily. This does take a little bit of time. It's not exactly super rapid, especially with the funds that amphibians are generally given. They're not exactly something that's regarded with much high of value in our current society. But you can also look for clinical signs, and this would be lethargy, lack of appetite, just kind of looking very dull in the eyes, any lesions on the skin. So we are able to do testing, and in theory, the testing would be able to happen quick enough where you can keep animals in quarantine of sorts, test them all. As long as they're all clean, then they're able to be passed through. For our regular listeners, they're pretty familiar with PCR. We've discussed it in a lot of episodes at this point. Now that you've conducted these interviews, what are you going to do with this data? For example, are you maybe going to go to lawmakers and show them this data and try to encourage them to implement stronger legislation to help the amphibian pet trade? So on a little bit of a more personal note with my research, I actually recently contacted our Senator Debbie Sabinow who's on the committee with Marco Rubio for the current bill that's trying to be passed. And I emailed her and I just kind of told her where I was coming from and the research that I had been doing and what I had been hearing from other people about this kind of legislation. You know, who knows how that'll end up, but that's one avenue that I have taken. I also am working with the USGS B-Cell Task Force. And it's kind of a collaboration of a bunch of different researchers across the country who have taken on this additional work team for BSAL and helping the pet trade. Currently, the task force is in works with PJAC, the Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council, and they're working together to create a broader and more succinct survey than mine was. So using the information that I've provided and have given them through more open-ended interviews, they're going to be able to create a survey that is more multiple choice options and you can elaborate if you'd like, but this is to help get a wider consensus of the general population of those involved in the amphibian pet trade instead of the interviews that I conducted, which while were very qualitatively bountiful, I'll say, they had a lot of information in them. Because they were a lot of information, I wasn't able to conduct as many as I wanted, whereas the survey that they'll be producing will be able to reach a wider audience. And hopefully this information and the goal of all of this information and these surveys is to provide this information to lawmakers so that they have some knowledge and some basis to form their legislation on. Well, I can't stress enough just how important doing advocacy like that is, especially when it comes to informing our policymakers and leaders about the different kinds of research that exists and how it can impact the kinds of decisions that they make inside of the House or the Senate. We talked a lot about policies here in the United States, but how does this compare to around the world, for example, where the BSAL is a lot more prominent? So I'm going to be honest, I'm not super knowledgeable on very detailed around the world policies. 
in Southeast Asia, the uh, fungus is actually endemic there, and the newts and salamanders there don't face any adverse effects from it. So they really don't have anything too much to worry about over there with their wild populations. When looking at Europe, as far as I'm aware, they haven't experienced any more massive mortality events than what they initially had. So I'm assuming that they have been able to conduct some sort of biosecurity operation, though that is something that I would love to look into and am interested in. It has also been found in captive populations in the United Kingdom, and how they deal with that is basically just uh, euthanasia of all of the animals in that population and that they're being captively held together. And this typically includes like in the entire building and not just in one tank. It hasn't been found across the Atlantic yet, though, which is something that it's a little nerve wracking, but it is what it is. Yeah, and if I'm recalling correctly, you had mentioned that it was probably starting in Europe. So I would imagine that if Europe had a stronger biosecurity measures, then it probably wouldn't have spread to the rest of the countries. I'm very glad that you were able to reach out to Senator Stabenow. If you do have the opportunity to speak to her or to other lawmakers, what are some suggestions that you would give to them? I would honestly hope that they would be a little bit more patient with making the decision and how to approach biosecurity actions for BSAL. While it is something that is scary, it, at this point, we don't have any imports of these salamanders coming in that could be carrying it. And there is always the illegal trade. There's always some other aspect that could go into it. But at the moment, we've kind of, in a way, covered our bases. So I think that being a little bit more patient with the process and getting a little bit more feedback from the people that these decisions are actually going to be affecting some of the recommendations that I've found that seem to be more widely supported would be implementing testing for amphibian diseases at imports and having quarantines for these amphibians and all exotic species that are imported into the United States. This would help with making sure that it's a clean trade. So I don't want to see the amphibian pet trade collapsing and the people that I work with don't either. And I would hope that our lawmakers don't either. And none of these stakeholders I've talked to want it either. So hoping for a more thoughtful decision making that would look at alternatives instead of going full force with a all outright ban. Thanks for providing those suggestions, Gia. For those that don't know, I actually know Gia from our student local radio station here at Impact A9FM. So if you couldn't tell, Gia basically does it all. Gia, could you talk a little bit about your student experience here at Michigan State and what you want to do afterwards? For sure. So I am a transfer student, actually. I came in my second semester of sophomore year, and before that, I was an acting major. So I was an acting major at Western Michigan University, and then I transferred to MSU and started doing fisheries and wildlife. That semester, I started volunteering at Impact as a radio station DJ. So I was on air staff, and my student experience was primarily a typical student experience, I'd say. Nothing crazy for most of it until about COVID happened, and most of my time in college has kind of been defined as that. I now work with my research, which I've been working on for about two years. Hopefully, we'll be starting to do a write-up at the beginning of next semester. I'm quite excited for that. Probably going to submit for some journals. I'm also at the radio station. I'm now the programming assistant and the co-host of a specialty show. 
which has been very defining for me and a wonderful creative space for me here at Michigan State. While I have my science side, I can still have a more free, creative, and passionate mind in that sense at the radio station. Afterwards, I really don't know what I'm going to do. I just hope that I find a way to combine a love for listening to people and helping people and this weird fascination I have with diseases and amphibians. Somehow combining all of those is what I hope to be able to do, and I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but I will do my hardest to get there. Well, I believe when you GM. It's been a wonderful experience getting to know you and also getting to know about your research during this interview. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Sci-Files. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on The Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.